title of my talk tonight, um, and I like to thank the Yohiro Center for inviting me to speak tonight, um, is Ethics in Finance, a New Financial Theory for a Post-Financialized World. But spoiler alert, um, I actually don't give you the full-blown new theory of finance. I give you a skeleton version, a new approach with the elements I think are necessary for a new theory. I haven't fleshed it all out because you know, I'm not that brainy, really. Um, it'll take me a lot more time, but I'm trying to flesh it out with the help of uh, people who are also working at the Institute. But first, let me give you a quick summary of what I'm going to do tonight. I know I have 45 minutes, do I? Okay. We can be flexible about that. All right. Um, so first, I'm going to talk, tell you a little bit about Southern Phyllis Institute. We're rather new in the stage. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about my talk. It's going to be... Uh, three sections. Um, first section, we're going to talk about the theories in finance which are en courant right now, and, and conventional finance theories which are used throughout global finance by practitioners. Perhaps not so much by practitioners, but there's definitely theories which are taught in business schools. Um, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about why they are limited and somewhat flawed and unlike physics or scientific theories which you know, are totally accurate in prediction and uh, you can rely on their predictions. These <coughs> are merely models and they're not scientific theories, they're more social theories and we should accept them as such. But they're viewed, at least in the academy, as theories which have forecasting uh, abilities. And then I'm going to talk a little about why ethics has been neglected in finance. In uh, theoretical finance, or the finance theories that we have right now, we actually don't have any view of uh, ethics or values because they're supposed to be objective. They're supposed to be positivistic and not value-laden. So we're going to see how did we come to this position where we just talk about efficiency and profit maximization and not about ethics at all. And then I'm going to propose the, the elements of my inchoate theory right now for the new finance theory, uh, which <coughs> incorporates ethics. First, about seven pillars, a short uh, marketing spiel for the Institute. It was started in 2010 by me. Um, and the mission of the Institute is to highlight and analyze issues of ethics in global financial markets with a view to enhancing ethical practice and policy. But as we all know, we live in a corporate, corporatized world, and the mission, and the word mission has come to encompass a very corporate kind of feel. So uh, we also have a quest because the quest sounds much more epic. It's more like world changing um, and perhaps a little quixotic. But you know, I'm I'm at the age where I'm allowed to be a little quixotic and start quixotic um, quests. So all epics contain a quest, and uh, you know Oxford is famous for uh, being the place where the author of the Lord of the Rings wrote. And you know the Fellowship of the Rings, they had a quest. And what was the quest? The quest was to find the One Ring, destroy it, and save mankind forever. So that so it's all encapsulated in this lovely poem: uh, One Ring to rule them all, One Ring to find them. One ring to bring them all, and in the darkness find them. So the fate of the world 
depends on the fellowship experience. Now, I don't want to say that the fate of the world depends on the, on the Seventh Village Institute achieving its quest, but it does show you that it is also a quixotic conquest. But we hope to find a finance theory in which ethics plays an integral role. And so far, there is not, not such a theory. Um, we want to encourage people to, to develop one. We want to be in the forefront of developing one. And we want to be the space for people to feel free to develop one. And uh, to that end, we have several researchers who are working with us on a part-time basis. Um, and we have uh, students who work in the institute all uh, you know, looking at this and contributing ideas. So why do we want to change the theory? Because I think our actions are based on theories. It's based on our beliefs, and our beliefs in turn derive from theories. So if we believe that uh, the role of economics, or the role of corporations, or all economic roles is to maximize profits, we become, we say, okay, let's maximize profits and let's put, put ethics as a byproduct, if there is a byproduct. So we need to change theory so that we say, as soon as we think about finance, we think about ethics is kind of intertwined. Instead of ethics, is has nothing to do with finance. <coughs> um, so let us start with the desolate history of uh, ethics and finance. Um, I wish to say clearly that everything I say about the flaws and limitations of modern finance theory and neoclassical economic assumptions have been said before. Uh, my critique is only original in that I put together, synthesized all the critiques into 40 minutes, if that's possible. And um, I've synthesized from many sources. Otherwise, the shortcomings of all these theories are known. It's just that they've been ignored. Now I have these critiques and you know ideas, knowledge of the flaws being ignored. It's my theory is that there is some confirmation bias, and confirmation bias is a tendency of people to favor information that confirms only their beliefs and hypotheses. So if even if new information comes out which shows that the modern finance theories are flawed, people tend to ignore them and only look at information or data which confirms <coughs> these theories. So many people, not many people, but there have been books uh, written about the limitations of modern finance theories. Uh, we just, it just doesn't seem to enter the, uh, the worldview of finance. So um, in essence, there are three theories uh, in modern finance theory. It encapsulates. It's, it's a, it's a, a modern finance theory is a term which encapsulates three main theories. First is the efficient market hypothesis. The second is the capital asset pricing model. And the third is options theory. Now these are the main theories that all finance students are taught at MBA school. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the first one, efficient markets hypothesis or EMH. And the second one, which is capital asset pricing model or CAPM. And I'm not going to go too much into options theory because it would, I, would be, I won't have the time. So first, the efficient market hypothesis. I'm going to talk about what it is. I'm going to give you the flaws. And then I'm going to talk about CAPM. I'm going to give you the flaws, OK? Um, so what does the efficient market hypothesis posit? It posits that all information 
is reflected in the share prices of companies. So let's look at all the assumptions, and there are quite a few. Uh, I'll try not to read them up all at once uh, and do it slowly for you. But I have you know six okay six points that EMH assumes first that the new information coming arrives uniformly, and this is all for uh, we're talking about the share prices in uh, of companies. So how are the share prices affected? By new information. The new information arrives uniformly in small, steady increments. Second, the new information causes stock prices to either fall or rise, depending if the news is good or bad. Third, the assumed behavior of stock prices in EMH is called random walk, or the more technical is called diffusion. So the model expects stock prices to appreciate through time and at an average rate of mu per year. Oh, by the way, finance models really like to use uh, Greek alphabets. I'm not sure why, but so it, the the stock prices appreciate at mu per year, and the average rate of return increases faster over the same time period because it's a product of time. So uh, average rate of return is mu t, mu times time. Fifth, the movement up and down from the stock price trend. Let's say the top stock price is going this way, or is a drift around the trend, is called the volatility. <coughs> so you're looking at mu and you're predicting this stock price is going to go up like this, but then there's going to be some movement up and down uh, the trend, and how much it moves from that trend is called sigma. And sigma, that's the largest, that's the largest uh, component here of the theory, is called volatility. So in EMH, volatility is a measure of uncertainty of returns of a stock. It is a measure of risk. Okay. So in summary, EMH tells us two things. The behavior of stock price movements, i.e. the stock price drift, and two, the volatility of stock prices or how it moves up and down away from this trend. Both have been shown to be inaccurate and limited. So let's just uh, look at um, this here. Oops, you, you, okay. So if you can, the pointer doesn't work, does it? Does it work? You won't be able to see it, unfortunately. Really? It does work. That is so weird. It, yeah. I can see on my hand. It's just not very powerful. All right. So, I just have to use my short hands. As you can see, um, the first line there is what is predicted by EMH. Uh, uh, and the third line are various predictions using, you know, different prices. But they're all the predictions of EMH. But the third line, is what it actually happened. And this was over, uh, I think, a 10-year period. So it didn't even look like the actual performance of the share price, the predictions. So empirically, EMH has been shown to be false many, many times over. So what is the problem here? Well, sometimes the news is so big and important that the stock price spikes or dies. In a market, panic selling pressure People are fearful and they go in the selling. We saw that 
in the 2008 financial crisis. So instead of rationality driving the price, because EMH is based on the assumption of pure rationality, fear decides price movements. And these types of events are not rare, but do not fit into the efficient market's hypothesis. Um, I have a quote here from Andrew Smithers, who is a, has been a practitioner in the markets for a long time, and he works in London for, in, uh, he does research for Smithers. <coughs> he says, EMH is testable in its random walk form, as you can see, but fails the test. Real equity returns exhibit uh, no correlation. And EMH therefore falls on the wrong side of the demarcation between science and non-science. So, all right, so we have the, emission, the efficient market hypothesis, we have the critique, and we have the empirical uh, uh, data which shows that it's not trustworthy. Um, let's see, the other one. Let's look at The other thing about, uh, as I said, efficient market hypothesis is that it measures risk, but there's only just one risk, which is volatility of the share price versus the stock price trend. And this is sigma. But we know that there are more risks in the world than just one risk. I mean, if you really want to be talking about reality, there is the whole universe of financial assets. We have stock risk, bond risk, commodity risk, currency risk. And we have risks across sectors. Technology sector risk is different from utility sector risk. And EMH ignores the risks that arise from extreme greed and irrational fear. Um, the other thing is, both CAPM and uh, EMH use historical data in order to uh, get the value of sigma. And as we know, Historical data is not a, uh, well, put simply, <laughs> past is not prologue. So these values are calculated historically, looking backward rather than forward. And once again, we have Lawrence Summers, who used to be the Secretary of the Treasury of the US. He said, all participants in policy debates should retain a healthy skepticism about retrospective statistical analysis. So this is another weakness of emerging, uh, of e EMH and of modern finance theory. So okay, we've gone through one theory, which is the emerging, uh, which is the efficient market hypothesis. Let's look at the capital asset pricing model, or CAPM. Now, we said EMH only looks at one risk. CAPM tries to say, okay, we'll look at two risks. Uh, the two risks that we're looking at is systematic, or market risk, which is the risk uh, of the market. Uh, and it's called beta, it's unavoidable, and, we, and therefore the risk we should be rewarded for taking. And then we have the second risk, which is unsystematic ri risk, or the risk of the market specific to that stock. So we have market risk, beta, we have stock risk. Uh, so in a diversified portfolio, which is based on CAPM, you want more stocks so that all the stock-specific risks cancel out each other, you're left with market risk. Um, and I would give you all the, uh, it's the, uh, let's see.
It was. Um, I would go through all this with you, <coughs> except, you know, I'd have to really, really think and concentrate. But it also takes a long time. But after, while we're drinking wine, uh, we can talk about these formulas. But basically, CAPM is based on a formula, and the, 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 the uh, ultimate objective is to find out the rate of return of your stock. Okay? And the rate of return of your stock is based on risk-free rates, the market rate of return, and the beta, <coughs> which is the market risk. And this is another way we have of expressing CAPM. You see the left-hand side, RI minus RF equals beta into RM minus RF. Okay. So, but we can test, right, uh, because we have, let's test it on Apple, which is one of my favorite stocks, because I'm an app, we have iPhones, iPads, iPods in the family. So, let's test it if it was very good at predicting the rate of return on Apple stock for 10 years. Uh, or, let's just say, uh, maybe one year. Um, period of September 16, 2009 to September 13, 2010. This was done by Emmanuel Derman from Columbia University. So what would happen is you would see the left-hand side should equal the right-hand side because that's how the formula is done. So if you use the return, the rate of return of uh, Apple stock is, was 55. <coughs> um, the risk-free rate was 1, beta was 1.05, and RM rate of return of the market was 11%. So, looking at the left-hand side of the equation, we have 54%, and the right-hand side of the equation was 10.5%. So the left-hand side of the equation did not equal the right-hand side of the equation. So CAPM really did not have much predictive value in calculating the rate of return of Apple stock over one year. In fact, it was 44 percentage points uh, the left-hand side of the equation is 44 percentage points greater than the right-hand side. Didn't work. Why? Well, you know, the proponents of CAPM say well, it was too short a time period. Or they said uh, there was, uh, <coughs> there might have been a lot of statistical fluctuation. Uh, other risks might have been in, in the markets. But if this argument is true, about the time period and the other risks, then it already shows that CAPM has an inadequacy. And the model does not take into account other risks and is not good for specific time periods. So uh, this, is not this is just a quick way of showing an empirical problem with the model, but researchers have done long-term studies and uh, they've done uh, the uh, studies over different stock markets, different time periods, and uh, basically the bottom line is all the empirical studies show very mixed results and no incontrovertible evidence that supports CAPM as a solid theory. All right. So we've talked about EMH, and we've talked about CAPM, and we've shown the flaws of both models. A quick look at options pricing model, I'll just tell you it's tells you how to price options. But again, many empirical studies done on this model based on the returns uh, or the pricing of an option. And once again, 
the evidence is mixed. Um, empirical evidence shows a disturbing lack of accuracy in the options pricing model. Uh, so <coughs> they're not very reliable. And um, as my husband was saying when I was uh, telling him all this, he said if these models were weapon systems, we'd be missing our targets. But maybe that's, have we been missing our targets? Well, just one or two, but like, you know, we would not rely upon it if it was a, a system dependent on science. So let's talk about uh, these models, why you know, they, they, they seem to lack uh, substance in terms of forecasting ability. And there are assumptions behind, behind all of these, behind EMH, behind CAPM, behind the options pricing model. They are all assumptions in neoclassical economics, and they just transferred them to modern finance theory. So let's look at the assumptions of uh, modern finance theory. First, economic agents are assumed to be rational. Second, what is rationality? Rationality is defined, is assumed to be utility maximization. Third, what is utility maximization? Utility maximization is assumed to be just purely profit. Fourth, economic agents are therefore assumed to be rational profit maximizers. That's all we are. And this kind of person, this kind of human who is described in modern finance theory and neoclassical economics, we call him homo economicus. Okay? So it comes from, so how did we go from these assumptions to this ethic that ethics don't matter? Well, first, we went from assume, let's assume this to actually is. After a few years, 10 or 20 years into these theories, it went economic agents are rational. Rationality is utility maximization. Utility is profit. And economic agents are therefore, are therefore rational profit maximizers. So that's how it evolved 10 years later. 50 years later or 30 years later, coming closer to where we are, it became an ought, right? Economic agents ought to be rational. Rationality ought to be utility maximization. Utility ought to be defined in economic terms as profit. And therefore, economic agents ought <coughs> therefore to be rational optimizers and profit maximizers. So that's how we went from is to ought. And although proponents of modern finance theory say that there is no ethics or no values inherent in the theories, this already has become the ethic. The ethic is uh, economic agents ought to be rational profit maximizers. Now they don't quite realize, well people maybe they realize they don't want to talk about it, but this has been the ethic and we have seen it in over 50 years because modern finance theory is about 50, 60 years old which is very young, you know, by any historical length of time for theories. It's a very young theory, but it has solidified or ossified into this hard thing, which says that we just ought to be profit maximizers because that's how it evolved historically. And it wasn't always that way, right? Because the, who is the uh, 
father, you know, <coughs> of, of uh, modern economics is Adam Smith, and he was a moral philosopher first. Amartya Sen, who is from Oxford, he wrote a title, a book entitled On Ethics and Economics. So Smith worried about the free market system and its impact on society and on the common good. Um, and modern finance theory's narrow definition of rationality as profit maximization, and his followers on assumption that economics are solely self-interested, gives no account to ethics and values. Um, the failure to speak about values is a serious one and has had deleterious effects on the practice of finance, as we have recently seen in the 2008 global financial crisis. So I would say empirically, historically, and theoretically speaking, modern finance theory's assumption of the self-interested economic actor is wrong, or is a very narrow view of the human psyche. Homo economicus is not homo sapien, okay? But yet, this is deeply ingrained in our models and theories. It's very hard to shift. So, uh, in fact, it is so deeply ingrained in the psyche of academics, practitioners, and the media that Alan Greenspan said, uh, who is the chairman of the, the U.S. Federal Reserve, he bemoaned the fact that managers of financial institutions did not adhere to the tenets of enlightened self-interest. His dismay was not from a failure to recognize bankers would act in self-interest but a failure to recognize that bankers would act in such a self-destructively opportunistic way. <coughs> uh, Adam Smith and David Hume had remarkably sophisticated views of the human psyche versus the impoverished view of homo economicus we hold today. Um, in fact, uh, as you know, Smith wrote about moral sentiments. Um, but over a century or so, economics and later finance lost touch with the basic human values that drive societies and markets. We have moved from a worldview that includes moral sentiments to one in which moral sentiments have no rational place. However, MFT's narrow modeling of human behavior does not change the reality on the ground. And I have seen this reality because I've worked in finance, in international finance, for over 20 years. I worked in Singapore, I've worked on Wall Street, I've run $2 billion, and <coughs> financial actors and economic actors are not corporate economists. Um, so, I know Mark said, how did you come from global finance to um, ethics? And that is one reason I'm saying, like, theories do not match the practice. And I just wanted to see uh, intellectually if there was a way to start a theory which actually was more reflective of practice. And uh, during the time when I was <coughs> working on in finance, I saw that there were two, two ethical values, major ethical values that underlie financial markets, ensuring their proper functioning. One is fairness and the other is trust. Now these are ethical values, no doubt. They are virtues, of course, if you uh, want to look at it from an Aristotelian view. So Homo economicus is an impoverished model of Homo sapien. Homo economicus 
value system is one, self-interest, two, profit maximization. Does that, think about yourself, is that you? I just asked this of everyone, does that reflect you? It doesn't <coughs> reflect me. Now, but on the other hand, we have such rich value systems that are put aside, you know, separated from our financial theories, and these value systems con uh, consist of, are, are written in religious moral systems, all of them from Christianity to Islam to Buddhism. Um, and then we have a rich philosophical uh, system of moral systems that are bound to it. And yet we rather choose to ignore them, but stick to self-interest and profit maximization. So what if, uh, we have a new theory, or try a new theory of approach to finance. Um, uh, okay, um, let's go back. Never mind. Um, and I propose that we synthesize this new theory from the three extant theories we have on finance. One, we have modern finance theory, which I've just explained to you briefly. It's quantitative, and it is a you know, well-done uh, system. It has all the equations you need. It's quanti uh, quantified all the data. And it has some forecasting ability, but limited. We must understand its limitations. The second is behavioral finance, which comes out of behavioral economics. Now, behavioral finance is the study of individual and group behavior with a basis in psychology, in financial decision-making, with the goal of better understanding security returns. So we're looking at social psychology and individual psychology in financial decision-making. Um, and proponents uh, argue that modern finance theory uh, assumptions that decision makers are rational is too simplistic. Uh, and it leads to many anomalies in securities pricing. Um, so let me just give you an example of what they do in behavioral finance. Um, and one is called the base to show that there is more going on in the human psyche than just I'm going to profit maximize. So uh, they were trying to test how human beings feel about fairness. Okay, do we really think fairness, the human feeling about fairness is relegated behind profit maximization? So it's called the ultimatum game. It's been tested throughout cross-culturally and it's been tested over a series of years and the <coughs> results are pretty much the same. Player one is known as the proposer she is given a significant amount of money and instructed to offer a portion of this money to a second player, the responder. Both proposer and responder know the amount given to the, to the proposer. The responder may accept the proposer's offer, in which case both players receive their respective share of the money. However, the responder may also <coughs> reject the proposer's offer in this event, neither player receives any money. So according to modern finance theory, you know, the proposer should try and keep as much of, a, of the money as possible, give a very nominal small amount to the responder, and if the responder is 
rational, according to modern finance theory assumption, the responder will accept the offer because 10 cents is better than zero cents, right? So even if it's like 50 bucks or 50 quid, and the uh, proposer says, out of the 50 quid, I'm keeping 49.90, and you, responder, I'm giving you 10p. Now, if you are a rational person, according to neoclassical standards, you say, I'll take the 10p, because 10p is better than 0p. But what did they find, actually, across cultures? They found that this did not occur. Few act according to conventional rationality model. The typical allocation is 20 to 50%. If respondents were offered less than 20%, let's say you were offered 10p, they said no. So neither the respondent nor the proposer got any money. Uh, they rejected the offer, acting irrationally because they prefer to take nothing than to accept an offer that seems to them unfair. So to quote uh, the chap who did, uh, the Dobson, who did some of these studies, he said, in other words, the principle of fairness has intrinsic value to them, and they are prepared to uphold that principle even in the face of a guaranteed material loss. Bang. That goes that assumption of rationality, right? Based on human behavior and empirical, empirical studies. So we have to reassess some obstacles of faith in modern finance theory. So that's the second uh, extant financial theory we can use to synthesize our new theory. Now what's the third extant theory that we can use? Uh, behavioral finance gives us a rounder picture of the human psyche. Modern finance theory gives us the quantitative models. But Islamic finance <coughs> gives us the ethical basis of a theory which has, which is driven by ethical principles, based on religious, uh, religiously grounded. Um, there is an existence, okay, uh, uh, financial theory called Islamic finance, and the theory of and practice of finance according to Islamic principles is called Islamic finance. Islamic principles determine the objectives and the operations of Islamic finance. Um, the principles and prohibitions of Islamic finance are expounded in the Sharia, and the Sharia is defined as uh, Islamic law. Now, two features of Islamic finance distinguish the system from conventional modern finance theory. First, the purpose of is Islamic finance is to promote economic and social development through specific business practices. This is, they're not shy. They unashamedly say, we are driven by this ethical purpose. Now, conventional finance has profit maximization as a goal, whereas Islamic finance is driven by ethical and religious-inspired <coughs> goals, as stated in the Sharia. Secondly, Islamic finance proposes a risk-sharing philosophy, whereby the lender must share in the borrower's risk. According to the Islamic view, a non-Islamic interest-based loan guarantees a return to the lender, but the burden of risk falls disproportionately on the borrower. This unequal distribution of risk, where the borrower bears more than the lender, according to Islamic view, is exploitative, socially unproductive, and economically wasteful. 
So what is the purpose of Islamic finance? As I've said, it is to develop and help the society and people in the community. Um, in conventional modern finance, the purpose is achieved through rational, uh, well, there is no stated purpose in modern finance theory, but an unintended and unstated purpose of modern finance theory is to increase economic efficiency. And the behavior of individuals in the market, the, the market you know, consequently leads to prosperity, and uh, the outcome of all this financial activity is economic efficiency. In contrast, the fun purpose of Islamic finance is derived from the Sharia. The Sharia is religious law uh, that Allah gave to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. As such, the purpose of Islamic finance is uh, driven is, is driven uh, by the by Sharia, so it is religiously grounded. And, and because finance is only one part of life, it is also considered to be part of the Muslim's life and therefore also uh, grounded in the Sharia. And the objective of the Sharia is happiness and well-being of the people in this worldly life as well in the life hereafter. So therefore, the objective of Islamic finance is also the well-being of people in this life and in the life hereafter. So Islamic finance must contribute to the development and the good of the Islamic community. So as Sharia as a guide, Islamic finance contains a comprehensive <coughs> system of ethics and morals. So according to some Islamic finance scholars, Islam adopts a balanced approach between an individual's freedom and the well-being of society. So what are some of the things prohibited in Islamic finance? Uh, in order to conform to Sharia's rules. First, uh, Islamic finance prohibits interest. So you're not supposed to lend money to borrowers at interest rates. It prohibits excessive risk, which is why in Islamic finance you will not see derivatives, options, etc., because they consider that uh, those instruments be excessively risky. And it does not, uh, and it prohibits speculation or gambling. So that's why Muslims do not are not allowed to gamble, you know. Um, and it's covered in the Sharia. You know, I can give you the the verses in the uh, Quran where it says definitively that interest is prohibited. So why are why is interest prohibited? There are five reasons that Islamic scholars propose. One, riba is Riba is is, uh, is the Arabic word for interest. So riba is unjust. Number two, riba corrupts society. Third, riba implies the unlawful taking of property. Fifth, fourth, sorry, riba leads to negative growth. It's rather strange, but they have a whole line of reasoning, which is quite logical. And fifth, riba demeans and diminishes the human personality. So the Islamic finance without riba, according to the proponents of Islamic finance, promotes socio-economic and distributive <coughs> justice. And intergenerational equity, which we are talking a lot about in the West, is also more likely to result from banning interest. Um, so, 
this system of finance is coexisting with uh, our conventional system of finance. We, they practice it and they have it all over the Arab world. Um, Malaysia is a very big center of Islamic finance. And they have various modes of Islamic finance which seriously do not have interest. They are into profit sharing or into something they call murabaha, which is cost plus. So if you want to borrow money for a car, to buy a car, let's say, the bank will lend you the money, not lend you the money, the bank will give you the money, but after five years, you must give back the money plus a service charge, they call it. So it's not interest, it is at the cost of using the bank service. So this is called the cost plus uh, mode of financing. And the other one is profit sharing, the bank you know, you're not allowed to get interest in your bank accounts. So a depositor will put money into a bank, not get interest, but the bank will use the money from the depositor, invest it in various things like giving, uh, giving the money, to, let's say, loaning the money to, it's very hard not to have the language on this, but lending the money to people who borrow money for a car, they get the cost plus back, and then they distribute the profits from the money to the depositors. So they don't give interest rates. Now a lot of uh, uh, people who criticize Islamic finance say that, well, it's just language, you know, it's actually they do charge an interest, but yeah, they call it cost plus, or they call it profit sharing. But you must understand that language and how you practice is influences your thought process. Because if it's not interest, and you say it's cost plus, you're saying, okay, I'm paying for a service, or is profit sharing, is, okay, I'm helping this business by putting my money in it and I'm getting a return on it. It's not as if I'm a deposit in a bank and I get interest. So there are, it does make a difference. And it's not just language. So the three elements, uh, so I've said, let's synthesize, let's try and synthesize a new theory out of the elements of the three extant theories. And uh, there are three other things you need in this theory, in all this approach to the new theory. The first is that the theory must enunciate a purpose. Does anyone know what the purpose of finance is right now? No one talks about it, because the purpose of finance is to make money, we think. So we must have a talos. Uh, and it, it should be a noble purpose. Why can't we enunciate a noble purpose for finance? and one that is uh, aimed at serving others. So I suggest that the purpose of finance is to help people save, manage, and raise money. Purpose is the end towards all actions are directed. Purpose guides actions. <coughs> so Aristotle asked about the purpose of everything from medicine to generalship. And uh, every action and decision is done for the sake of an end or a purpose. And the ancient Greeks knew this, the Stoics, the Scholastics. And you know what is the uh, second most translated book in the world and the best-selling hardback non-fiction book in history is? Of course, the most translated book is the Bible. And the best-selling uh, book is the Bible too. But the best-selling hardback non-fiction book in history is something called The Purpose Driven Life. And it's written by Rick Warren. And you have to be in the state to see how it's everywhere at airports and all. And basically, he does say 
you must have a purpose in life, and everyone seeks purpose. So a noble purpose is probably more likely to engender good acts, although it does not guarantee every act will be good. <coughs> Most professions have a purpose which they enunciate. So the legal profession's purpose is to help people obtain justice. The teaching profession's purpose is to help people learn. The medical profession's purpose is to help people be healthy. So why, why would it be odd to have a purpose stated for finance professionals? So the purpose of finance is to help people save, manage, and raise money. And we should teach this to students, we should teach this to people, kids in elementary school, uh, secondary school, and practitioners must be comfortable talking about the purpose of finance, knowing it implicitly, and not being ashamed of it. Uh, and it, I think this acceptance acknowledgement of a purpose is the first step towards changing the culture of finance. And where does the improvement come about? The improvement comes about because of this ethically charged phrase, to help people. This phrase instills, instills the notion of the other in finance. And the other, the idea of the other is where altruism and ethics begins. Secular moral philosophy from theories of justice <coughs> to utilitarianism concerns the other. The idea of helping the other also is widespread in religions from the Mosaic to the Eastern religions. It is a basis of religious ethics. Christians are asked to love their neighbors, Muslims to show mercy to the less fortunate, and Buddhists to have compassion for sentient beings. Where finance has fallen over the past half century, is this gradual abandonment of an acknowledged purpose that entails the notion of helping the other. Um, finance has been quantified for efficiency, made positivistic to escape the quagmire of relativism, but quantification has led to the collective unconscious, equating finance almost exclusively with money. Um, neglecting the connecting link, which is people. So much so that we have people like the Pope Emeritus, Benedict, and present Pope Francis, and the Dalai Lama saying to people who are inclined to listen, money or finance is meant to serve people, and people are not <coughs> meant to serve money. Articulating the purpose of finance clarifies for everyone the role and work of finance professionals. So instead of having this fuzzy connection, what is the purpose of finance? You say, well, finance is money, and money is finance. You have, uh, it leads to this mistaken belief that finance is money, and money should be as much as possible for me. That's the purpose of finance. We should have this much less fuzzy and more correct connection in our minds, which is finance is to help people with their money. It's, I think it would be a remarkable change in worldview and attitudes if we just had this. So the quest of the Institute is to develop a finance theory with a purpose like this. Now the second element of the, of the new theory is context. The, there must be cognizance, as I've just uh, said uh, and tried to uh, clarify, is we must accept that Modern finance theory is not the single solution to all financial issues. 
We must use financial theories according to the context. So recently, regulators have been using behavioral finance to inform the setting of regulations. One of the biggest uh, economists to help with this is Cass Sunstein. He used to be the uh, advisor to Barack Obama, and using his theory of nudge is to set financial regulations with uh, the idea that people uh, function as human beings and not homo economicus. So nudge is a proponent using findings of behavioral finance to influence regulatory initiatives. Uh, another example where behavioral finance is used in finance now is uh, Elizabeth Warren, who was just elected senator uh, last year. Uh, have given us reason to expect that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in the US will rely heavily on behavioral analysis to support regulation. And third, Britain's own uh, Financial Conduct, uh, Conduct Authority will tap into behavioral economics to bolster regulation of markets through better knowledge of uh, financial consumers and their psychology. So one, we have uh, purpose, two, we must have context, the right context to use the right theory, and third, and finally, uh, final element uh, or element to our new approach to finance is we must have some epistemological humility. Uh, we simply must realize the limitations of modern finance theory. We must have a large m measure of humility when using the theory. And this turn in our approach and attitude towards modern finance theory is itself, it, it will be a tremendous <coughs> step forward from where we are at the moment. Um, so we have finally, uh, the call for a turn in finance theory uh, to incorporate ethics comes from the highest level uh, of people in religious traditions. Uh, such as Pope Francis, who has just uh, whose papacy emphasizes economic justice and calls for even ethical financial reform that will benefit everyone and for the world of finance economics to make people a priority by taking into account the importance of ethics, solidarity, subsidiarity, and the common good. So, from the highest religious levels, there's a call for it. To the highest secular levels. Uh, Jeffrey Sachs, who is a Columbia professor and director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University, says, I believe we have a crisis of values that is extremely deep because the regulations and the legal structures need reform. But I meet a lot of these people on Wall Street on a regular basis now. I'm going to put it very bluntly. I regard the moral environment as pathological. And I'm talking about the human interactions that I have. I've not seen anything like this, not felt it so palpably. These people are out to make billions of dollars and nothing should stop them from that. And that was quoted from Jeffrey Sachs. <coughs> so in line with these thoughts on the highest religions to the highest secular levels, Seventh Pillars Institute pursues this quest in the hope of putting ethics back into financial theory and financial practice. Thank you.